top of your handout, you'll see a theme if you had to summarize the book of Zechariah. I'd put it this way, lift up your eyes above the turmoil. We live in difficult days, and we can lift our eyes above the problems of this world and see uh, God's solutions and blessings. So another way to say it, a little bit longer, main point across the top there, when we are in discouraging circumstances, such as living in a crumbling society, God melts our discouragement by calling us to lift up our eyes to see his coming kingdom. Then we always do a summary of the book of Zechariah according to our theme. Our theme has always been this, what I call God theater, or presenting a story, either through words or could, could even be acted out, I suppose. God theater of who are the parties, what's happening, and what does it tell us about God. So, for example, we had uh, Jonah and the whale. That's uh, quite an entertaining story for, for children, but for us as we study it, we find out things about God for example, that he's holy, that he's sovereign, powerful, and offers redemption. So I'm going to read now from your handout, Zechariah. Our 11th minor prophet presentation in our God Theater is consistent with the theme of all 12 minor prophets. We summarize with these three words, judgment unto restoration. The book of Zechariah is concerned with Jerusalem, the cleansing of the community, the inclusion of the nations, the continuing significance of the earlier prophets, the restoration of the land's fruitfulness, the renewal of God's covenant with people's covenant with God, the ingathering of the exiles, the outpouring of God's spirit, and the central role of the coming anointed one of God. So the first half of the book, uh, chapters 1 through 8, helped the original audience to view their discouraging current situation in a new way with a bright hope in God. The second half of the book, chapters 9 through 14, pointed the reader to the redeeming work of God in the world through a significant individual being humiliated yet shining with glory, undergoing suffering yet showing greatness, being rejected yet accepted by God, being conquered yet conquering, and becoming a victim yet ending the victor. So, of course, that points to Christ. So I'd like to do a quick review of the five themes of the Minor Prophets and how Zechariah is a classic example of those five themes. Number one, you're tracking with me on your handout, right? So number one there, sovereignty of God. It means that God is in control, in active control of all of reality with every element of creation at his disposal. And so in Zechariah, we see that um, exemplified by this term, this phrase, the Lord of hosts. Zechariah uses the term, the Lord of hosts, about 50 times in just these 14 chapters. The Lord of hosts, the sovereignty of God, is a theme in the Minor Prophets, and it's a theme in Zechariah. Number two, God's inflexible and righteous judgment of sin. God seems angry at sin in each of the studies that we've had, right? We'll see it again here in, in Zechariah. Um, for example, chapter 14, verse 13, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them. Not a single sin in all of history will go unpunished or unaccounted for. Every sin will be answered either in the death of Jesus for the sinner or instead by the sinner suffering himself or herself in hell. Going on to number three, God's amazing love is also a theme in the Minor Prophets and a theme we'll see in Zechariah. Nothing that the Minor Prophets say affects this truth of God's love. Nothing they say about God's wrath or his judgment affects the fact that God is loving. Zechariah 10, verse 6, God said, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. 
for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. So again, it fits with judgment unto restoration. God is love. He restores. He's the God of salvation. So number three was God's amazing love. Moving to number four, our urgent need to get right with God. There's a sense of urgency across each of the minor prophets. You'll sense that again here in uh, Zechariah. The minor prophets did not want to see people ruined. They wanted to see people redeemed. So as they're preaching about God's wrath and God's judgment, it's meant to call people out of their danger. So the cry of the minor prophets is return to the Lord. For example, now if you're open to Zechariah, you can read our, uh, in our first chapter, verse 4. Um, Zechariah 1.4, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So the urgent need to get right with God, unlike their forefathers. Number four was our urgent need to get right with God. Number five, our last one, just reviewing some themes. Christ is coming. So we've seen this all across the Minor Prophets. We'll see it again in Zechariah. He writes not only about the first coming of Christ at at Christmas, but also his second coming, the triumphal return of Christ at the end of time. It's a repeated theme in the last chapter, uh, Zechariah 14. Um, Don't let me move on to Malachi without covering Zechariah 14. Um, We'll do that. But the repeated theme in Zechariah 14 I'll mention now. Uh, Zechariah refers there again and again to the phrase, on that day. It's just fun to read through if you're an underlining sort of person in your Bible. Uh, or you can make a Xerox copy and underline there just for study. On that day, underline those. Why does he keep report- repeating that phrase? Because he wants to have us understand what will happen on the last day, when Christ comes, the end of the world. What will happen? What will it be like when com- Christ comes a second time? So God had been declaring these five truths that we just covered, including the fact that Christ is coming, through the prophets for centuries. And it's repeated, we're on our 11th prophet. And these themes have all been said before. And yet God says, we need an 11th prophet. In fact, we're going to need a 12th prophet. So it's not enough to have the other 10. We need this 11th prophet too. And I think what's important for us to learn as an overall, I'm trying to give you the overview before we dig in, is that we don't need a new message It's these same five truths. It's these same truths that will be expounded again in the New Testament. All sinners through all generations need the same old story. In other areas, in our lives, especially I think in our generation, we want new. Um, It's not enough to have chocolate and also have peanut butter. You have to have Reese's, which is chocolate and peanut butter. And then you have to have Reese's Pieces. And then you have to have milk chocolate and dark chocolate ones. And then you have to have other varieties where you put pretzels in it. And we just keep wanting a new shape, new form, new size, new ingredient, new features on my car and my phone. i got to upgrade my phone because it's been months since I got a new one, right? New, 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 new. We can't let that get into our religion. We want old, 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 same, same, same. We... we, um, For example, I'll give you a couple quick examples from Old Testament, New Testament, then we'll move on. Jeremiah warned the people before the exile. You know, today we're talking about people after the exile, but this is before they went off into exile for 70 years. Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. The ancient paths. Where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. 
Fast forward to the same concept in the New Testament. Uh, the danger of chasing new thoughts in religion is the same danger today as it was in Zechariah's day or in Jeremiah's day. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2-4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, which means tell people how they went wrong, rebuke, which is tell them how it's wrong, and exhort, which tells them how to make it right, with complete patience and teaching. Why patience? Because you told them already, and you've got to tell them again. <laughs> right? Verse 3 of 2 Timothy 4, 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. Just again a reminder that we want the same old truths. Jeremiah, Timothy, uh, Paul, and uh, Zechariah line up with that. All right, moving on on your handout now, the next um, lines. What, what I did on that, rather than having a two-page handout or a three-page handout, I kind of squished some things here. So in your next section where it says keys to understanding the book of Zechariah, a lot of those are separate points. So I will, I'll try to verbally not, notify you or moving on to the next note. For example, Zechariah is quoted off in the New Testament. I'll talk about that for a minute, and then I'll go on and talk about refresh your walk with God, talk about that for a couple minutes. Bizarre pictures, and so on. So you get the idea. So first, about the quotations. Keys to understand the book of Zechariah, often quoted. Zechariah is quoted very often in the New Testament. Um, right up there with the most frequent ones, such as Isaiah and Psalms and uh, Deuteronomy. It's up there. I mean, it's quoted so often. Portions of Zechariah are cited over 70 different places in the New Testament. I can't even take time in these three classes periods to uh, unpack all of those, but the more you're familiar with Zechariah, the more you'll see it as you read the rest of the New Testament. One-third of those 70 quotes are in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're usually in the area talking about what we call the Passion of Christ, where he was being um, put on trial, he was being beaten, he was um, being crucified and dying. Those parts are often talked about and references made to Zechariah, especially the second half of Zechariah. So I'll cover that more uh, next week. Um, actually, not next week, the following week. So my plan is today to do the intro in chapter 1 and do a more thorough study of chapter 1 so that we get how these visions run to Christ and apply to us. Then next week I'll do visions 2 through 8, which is chapters 2, two through 8. And then the third and following final week I'll cover chapters 9 through 14 and uh, say more about this, where how they apply to uh, Christ, Christ Jesus, quotations, New Testament, things like that. So just a few more comments on it now. The, the book of Revelation has more references to Zechariah than to any other Old Testament book except Ezekiel. There's a lot of Ezekiel and a lot of Zechariah in the book of Revelation. Um, just a, a quick fun side note, the reformer Martin Luther, you know, 1500s, kicked off the Reformation, he called Zechariah the quintessence of the prophets. The quintessence of the prophets means it's like it's a classic example. Luther himself wrote two commentaries on Zechariah, one in German and one in Latin. Zechariah is obviously the longest of the minor prophets. Some say it's the most difficult to interpret. I won't ask for a show of hands, um, but... You could easily make that case. It's the most difficult to interpret, so 
you picked a good day to be here. Um, it's agreed that Zechariah is complicated, and perhaps one of the most cryptic or uh, mysterious books of the Old, uh, Old Testament. Again, the book of Zechariah influenced the Apostle John when he wrote the book of Revelation. So you, you set up well if you come these you know, three lessons to help you to understand the book of Revelation. How's that for a tagline or intro? And then quickly about his name. Um, you know how some of our minor prophets had a name that doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible? Oh, that's so not true. Uh, Zechariah is a name that's applied to at least 25 uh, men uh, in the Bible. Um, the, so this, this man, this, the author of our book, Zechariah, this Zechariah, identified himself in chapter 1, verse 1, as the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo. So we know which one we're talking about. But it's a common name, so don't always assume that, oh, that's the same Zechariah when you see it elsewhere in the Bible. So now I'm moving on. This is your verbal signal. I'm moving on on your handout to the next category, Refresh Your Walk with God, a little bit there. If you remember from last time, the last two weeks we covered Haggai, or no, just, just one week we covered Haggai. Um, just like there, and that was a good intro or setup for today as well, um, the audience of Haggai is the same as the audience for Zechariah. So this was the audience of the returnees from exile, the first group of returnees from the exile. They had been exiled 70 years later. Some were unable to come home. That's who Zechariah is writing to. While Haggai focused on the returning exiles rebuilding the temple, this was basically a brick and, and a lumber job. Let's, let's get this temple going. That's not the focus of Zechariah. Instead, the focus of Zechariah is encouraging the people to repent and renew their covenant with God from their hearts. His is a spiritual lesson. Of course, they're related, right? Why would you rebuild the temple? Because you're going to worship God in it and renew your heart and repent. And when you renew your heart and repent, what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to rebuild the temple in order to worship in it. So, of course, it would be necessary to have both Haggai and Zechariah stand together. Verbal signal, we're moving on to the next part of your handout, Bizarre Pictures. I hope you've read it. If you haven't read it, read a little bit today. It's rather entertaining. Um, it is so bizarre. It's truly a, a word that I'll stand by. I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong or saying uh, God is weird or anything like that. I'm just saying these pictures are bizarre, and they're supposed to be, um, but it makes it difficult for us to you know, interpret them. We can say easily that they're vivid images, um, mysterious visions. Uh, why is the woman in the basket? Uh, why is there a flying scroll, you know? It's meant to remind you of your own dreams, perhaps, at night. You have ever dreamed weird things, bizarre things, um, but it's tied to significant spiritual truth and encouragement for God's people. So the first half of the book is those bizarre visions. The second half, not. Very, very, very different. So first half, second half. But they're a unit. So let me talk about that for a minute. The character of chapters 1 to 8, the character of chapters 9 to 14, and how it's still one book. Okay? Differences. Chapters 1 to 8 are now and about local concerns. You can tell he's talking to the recent returnees from exile who are discouraged about various things, and he's encouraging them with these strange visions. The second half of the book 
is about the whole world and the distant future and cosmic concerns, local concerns, cosmic concerns. The first eight are about specific persons and personal names are given. But chapters 9 to 14, there are no names given. Instead, it is categories or titles such as king, shepherd, pierced one. So it's concepts that we're then, of course, pointing to the Lord Jesus as we know. Chapters 1 to 8 give dates and dates and dates. You're going to be tired of me saying Darius. In the second year of the Darius, the fourth year of Darius, we always want you to know, in fact, there's a very specific date that we're given, the dates the date of these visions being given to Zechariah. But in the second half, there's no dates at all. It's just this gigantic, um, undated, uh, philosophical, and uh, descriptive report. Chapters 1 to 8 read like prose, and you know, prose is like reading your newspaper. 9 to 14 are poetry. It's very, very different type of, of literature. So what holds them together? What do they have in common? Both halves are about Jerusalem, that God and the religion of man is centered in Jerusalem and its history. There's something significant, important, irreversibly important about Jerusalem. And we see that fulfilled, of course, because Jesus came there and ministered there, right? What about Jerusalem? People are sinners, so they need to be cleansed. The cleansing of the people of Jerusalem is central to both halves of the book. What about Gentiles? If you're not Jewish, can you be part of what God is doing and enter his kingdom? So yes, and that, that is mentioned in both halves of the book. A mention and importance on the dependence of former prophets. Zechariah is very concerned that you see him as the same as the other prophets. Same as Moses, same as the other uh, minor prophets. And that's true in both halves of the book. Restoring the fruitfulness of the land, because the land was destroyed, the city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. But we need fruitfulness. You obviously need the, the land to produce crops in order for the animals to live and the peoples to live, people to live. Renewing our, their walk with God and covenant is in both halves. The outpouring of the Spirit is mentioned in both halves. And how Christ is needed because we're sinners and Christ is coming because he saves. So those are our themes we'll see in both halves. Moving on to uh, the next thing in your handout, longing for God in a time of discouragement. We'll go through four um, areas where we know it's a time of discouragement. A, broken walls. B, unfinished temple. C, new and unstable local leadership. And D, new and unstable world leadership. All right? Four sources of discouragement upon arriving home. We mentioned last week how it's not this hallmark ending. We come home, big hugs, have a community parade. No, they're coming home to a, a dump and a, and a broken down garbage heap, right? The city walls were in ruins. So the returning exiles come home from Babylon to Jerusalem. They find the walls are broken down, the city's in ruins. The attack happened 70 years earlier. They still have no city walls. So A, it's a disgrace. What kind of city are you to have no walls? B, it's also unsafe. Walls are needed for protection from the enemy attack. So one of the first things Nehemiah said, for example, when um, Nehemiah... Uh, began his ministry in Nehemiah chapter 2 was to rebuild the walls. That's one of the first things they needed. Nehemiah 2.17, Nehemiah said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision or ridicule. So number one, problem number one, discouragement number one, no city walls. Discouragement number two, the temple. It still had stood in ruins. 
it's conspicuous to be in Jerusalem and have no temple at the center of the city. There's no temple there. What kind of Jerusalem is this? The fact that the temple work had started, but then had been abandoned, was an embarrassment, not to mention a discouragement to the people. They really wanted to make things right, to rebuild, and to worship God there. We, um, we know they set up the altar and they were offering sacrifices and worshiping God, but they didn't have the temple to go with it. So now they're wondering, they're humans like you and I are, right? Uh, sorry for the sports analogy, Packers lost. So if you're big into the Packers, you're like, yeah, we can do next season, but will next season be just like this? Right? That kind of discouragement is deep in them. Like We could start to rebuild the temple again, but will it be stalled again? The discouragement runs deep, is my point. Three, the leadership of the area was unstable. I'll talk a little later about this man named Zerubbabel, who'd been appointed governor of, I guess what I'll call as the county. If you think of Milwaukee, and then Milwaukee County, Waukesha County, Ozaki County, all around it, Zerubbabel was made governor of the, the area around Jerusalem. Um, about 17 square miles. And so Zerubbabel had just been made governor a few months prior, but now the people are wondering, well, is Zerubbabel going to do good or do bad? We don't know, because we've been burned before on this leader-type person. Even though Zerubbabel seems promising, their discouragement remained because their hopes had been dashed before. So Zechariah is writing during a time of discouragement, even on local leadership. And lastly, fourthly, there's a source of discouragement for the surrounding world. Um, you know how things that happen in the world affect us today because we call ourselves a global community, and it's true, but things still impacted them locally when they happened in a large scale, as we'll spend the next few minutes talking about. It was a time uh, we call the early Persian period of world history. They were discouraged by what they're seeing happen with another gigantic leader more distant. Which brings us to the next point on your handout. Jerusalem uh, came under new distant management, Cyrus. So the Persians rose to power rapidly under the leadership of Cyrus the Great. You've heard of the Medes and the Persians? Probably the reason you've heard of the Medes and the Persians is because of Cyrus, the Persian. He was able to successfully join together his empire, the Persian Empire, with the empire of the Medes in about the year 550. Instead of destroying them and maybe losing some people, he said, come work with me. And so they, they banded together the Medes and the Persians, made them even stronger. So Cyrus marched westward and defeated and acquired more cities and states. And then he also managed at the same time to march eastward to control lands extending all the way to India. And Cyrus was able to conquer the formerly powerful Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. Think with me. Don't, don't turn off because I'm talking history to Americans. Think with me. If Cyrus the Persian, the Medes and the Persians, conquer Babylon, what do they inherit? Babylon owns Judah and Jerusalem. So under new management, right? Zechariah is talking to returnees who were under Babylon. Then they were released to go home by whom? By Cyrus the Persian because Cyrus had inherited Babylon, Okay? So come on a new imagine. Just want you to understand that. The next thing on your handout is the big change that Cyrus brought. Not just a new, new management, but new rules under the new management. Babylon destroyed their temple. 
What does Cyrus do? He offers religious respect. He's like, you guys are Jewish? You guys want to build your temple? Go ahead and build your temple. He issued a policy of tolerance, we would call it. Conquered peoples were now allowed to reconstruct their sanctuaries, their temples, and return to their own traditional religious practices. It was expedient for Cyrus because people would be happier and they would also be taxed on all that stuff. Uh, So a money gain and morale gain, but it's reported in both the Bible and the ancient document called the Cyrus Cylinder. So that's the next things on your handout. Um, The big change Cyrus brought religious respect. I'm going to read Ezra 1, 1 1-4 and then a little quote from the Cyrus Cylinder, which you don't have in front of you. Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. There he is. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Quote, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, and besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Ezra 1, 1 to 4. Now I'll read this um, interesting document, the Cyrus Cylinder. It was a scroll that was written on a, uh, a stone that was cylindrical, looked like a soda can. That's how it gets its name. But it's just important as the words. Uh, Remember, he conquered Babylon. So listen for the the Babylon mention. All the kings who sat in throne rooms throughout the four quarters from the upper to the lower sea, those who dwelled in all the kings of the west country who were dwelled in tents, brought me their heavy tribute and kissed my feet in Babylon. Do you remember, those of you that studied Jeremiah with me, Babylon, when they conquered nations, would keep the kings alive and have them come to Babylon and they would mess with them right? You can have dinner with me, but then you're going to wipe my feet. You're going to kiss my feet, right? We're just going to demonstrate, and they have visitors come and say, watch this, the kings of that country, that country, that country, that country, uh, they, they all bow before me. It's just playing with them, right? Showing their power. So Cyrus takes over. He's like, oh, that looks cool. I'll just keep all these kings, and, and it'll be me instead of the king of Babylon. So they kiss my feet in Babylon, says he took over, and in took, taking over Babylon, he takes over all these other kings. So you get the idea. From the cities of Asher and Susa, Gade, Eshnuna, the cities of Zamban, Meteru, Der, as far as the region of the land of Getuim, the holy cities beyond the Tigris, which is you know, beyond the river, it, whose sanctuaries had been in ruins over a long period, the gods whose abode is in the midst of them, I return to their places and house them in lasting abodes. I gather together all their inhabitants and restore to them their dwellings. What he's saying is, all these people have gods, all of you guys rebuild your temples. So... God of Israel is one of those, and the Jewish people get to go home. So the question is, um, what's God doing? Who cares what Cyrus is doing? What's our God doing? So the people of God saw this edict from Cyrus as fulfilling God's promise. You're going to go into exile. Seventy years later, I'm going to bring you home. God fulfills his word through Cyrus. So it's an expression of God's intention to restore Israel. But it's more than just coming home. It's the fact that the sin of God's people led to the exile. The chastisement was defined as 70 years, and now it's over. And so the Lord himself would be with his people, bringing them back to Zion and rebuilding the temple. 
So in response to the edict from Cyrus, some of the Jewish exiles began to return to Jerusalem. Next on your hand of the unexpected disappointments in coming home. We covered them a minute ago, but let me say just a bit more here. When the Jewish returnees arrived back in Jerusalem, they had more difficulty than they expected. Political problems, social problems, economic problems, we covered some last week and some today. They began to rebuild the temple. Work quickly stopped. 17 years go by. During those 17 years, God was doing things in the Persian Empire. Cyrus was killed in battle in 530 BC. His son, Cambyses, assumed control, but he was a terrible tyrant. Cambyses was focused on military expansion of his empire, and he conquered Egypt in 525 BC, but then Cambyses died three years later. The next king was, guess who? Darius. That will be mentioned in the first verse of Zechariah. So I'm setting you up to understand your very first verse, okay? Darius. His reign is 36 years from 522 BC to 486 BC. When King Darius took control, the empire is in turmoil. So Darius consolidated the empire by suppressing revolts and reforming the way to, to oversee the empire. What he did is he divided it into 20 sections, 20 areas. You can call them states, provinces, whatever. Counties, maybe. He sent 20 Persian median, uh, Persian median um, officials, right? Persian officials. He called them satraps. You might remember that word from the book of Daniel. Satraps to make sure each area remained loyal to Darius, right? So the satrap is over one county, one state, and he makes sure that state is loyal to Darius. And if it's becoming unloyal, if there's a revolt coming, he reports that to Darius and he sends troops right away, okay? So this is the way to oversee his empire. The 20 regions became known as satrapies, like states. 20 satraps, 20 areas. The emperor Darius was able to collect taxes, give out laws. Each satrapy had districts, and those districts had governors over them. One of the districts was the area 17 miles square around Jerusalem, and that district's governor was Zerubbabel. Okay, so I'm trying to give you the, the background to the names that you'll read, the significant persons in our first chapter. Next on your handout, Darius appointed a son of David as a local ruler. I've just mentioned it, but now a little bit more. This 17 square miles around Jerusalem was called Yehud. Y-E-H-U-D, Yehud. King Darius appointed a descendant of David, no less. This man named Zerubbabel, who was the current title owner of the title, Son of David. In fact, if you want to flip to your Bible, I'm about to quote Matthew 1, verse 12. King Darius appointed this uh, Zerubbabel, the Senate of David, to be governor of that region, Yehud. Zerubbabel was governor there for 10 years. And now I'm reading Matthew 1, 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Right there in the first chapter of the New Testament. Do you want to understand the context that we're t- Zechariah is talking into? During those 10 years that Zerubbabel was governor of Yehud, the area around Jerusalem, reconstruction of the temple was resumed. It was Governor Zerubbabel, together with the high priest Jeshua, or some call him Joshua, who ordered the work on the temple. Those are the two figures we'll be talking about. It's all urged by the prophet Zechariah. You can read in Ezra 3 and in Haggai 1. Moving on on your handout to problems with the reconstruction of the temple. So, 
Even though the temple refurbishing was in the best interest of the Persian Empire under King Darius, because they wanted to develop a solid infrastructure somewhere to touch base on the way to Egypt. If Egypt starts to rebel, they're going to need a touch point to refuel, right, and to get down there and take care of business. So the perfect place for that is in the Jerusalem area. There's something in it for Darius. So they wanted the people to rebuild the temple, rebuild to be happy, pay taxes, and build a Persian uh, empire stop. Uh, so there's local challenges that were developed in the work of rebuilding the temple. There were enemies opposed to the work that tried various strategies to stop the efforts. Ezra 4, 1 to 5, we read some of that last week. So the conflict seemed to have prompted the Persian Empire to send a local governor of a, a neighboring, neighboring province to evaluate the situ- situation. So this guy comes loyal to Darius, and his name is Tatanai. You might remember because last week we referenced him and the details are in Ezra chapter 5. So he comes to see whether this area is being loyal to the empire. And after sorting all that out, Darius confirmed that the former decree of Cyrus, that the temple can be rebuilt, is still good. You can rebuild the temple. So construction was allowed to resume officially under Darius. It had been ordered by Cyrus. He's gone. Now it's reconfirmed by Darius. And so the temple was completed in the year 515 B.C., and we read that in Ezra chapter 6. So next on your handout is the backdrop for the visions and oracles of Zechariah. Those next decades from about 539 B.C. to 449 B.C. were the years about which Zechariah is writing. The people of Jerusalem and Judah were struggling financially, frustrated politically, divided socially. They did a new set of glasses through which to view with hopefulness the problems around them. The situations they were facing. So God called Zechariah to fulfill this need. So he gives them a new set of glasses by which to view Jerusalem, Judah, God, and the whole world. They looked at renewal of God's people. So next on your handout, renewal of God's people. The very first words of the book of Zechariah showed the need for being renewed in their relationship with God. I'll read Zechariah 1, 1 to 3. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers, right, before the exile. That's how the whole exile, in other words, remember the whole time out. (laughs) Learn something from this, right? Verse 3, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That's a pretty good deal. Return to me, I'll return to you. You want God present and nearby and on your side. So past generations were hard of heart, thus the whole exile. They weren't listening to prophets. So you might want to listen to the prophet Zechariah, and you might want to start turning back to God, right? Because if you don't, it leads to judgment and exile. So what's refreshing to hear in Zechariah is God is not done with his people. Return to me, I'll return to you. Like post-exile, we still have a God who's saying, I can work with you. Isn't that really nice? (laughs) That's very encouraging. That's already hopeful, right? He calls his people to come back to him. He calls his people to repent, promises to cleanse them if they do. Next on your handout, establishing God's kingdom. From Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7, to Zechariah 6, verse 8, there are a series of what we call night visions, the night visions of Zechariah. And the theme of the night visions is that God's kingdom would be established. If his people will turn to him, he will turn to them, um, he will establish his kingdom. 
He'll subdue all his enemies, bring his reign and rule across the whole earth. So the, the same theme is continued in the second half of the book of Zechariah with more statements about the destruction of God's enemies because of his king, his shepherd, and so on. But the last message of the book of Zechariah is not destruction of God's enemies. The last message is redeeming his people. The intent of God in fighting off all these nations is that they'll be subdued and turned to him as the true and faithful king. All right, so let's see here. I'm going to, um, what have I done? I talked too much. I was going to cover vision one, and then at 10 after 10, I was going to jump to this place of um, seeing how that applies to us. So let me just try to quickly summarize uh, the the call of Zechariah and summarize the first vision, and then I'll jump to, to where, uh, where I want to get to before we end our class. So call of Zechariah. Um, you know how Moses saw the burning bush? And that was the first time he was in communication with God, the, the divine, that um, he had access to God. It was, it was not just a vision of a burning bush. It was also God calling him to be a prophet. The call of a prophet is initiated by an experience with God and God speaking to him and him having permission to speak for God. So the same thing happens to Zechariah. If you look at verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to him. Verse 2, God was angry with previous generations. Verse 3, so return to God, he'll return to you. Verse 4, don't repeat the mistake of previous generations who didn't hear or pay attention to God. Verse 5, those previous generations, where are they? Answer, they're judged. And they're gone now, right? Verse 6, God's words to the previous generations overtook them. So what does the passage mean? Heed Zechariah. So God knew it was a time of discouragement, so wouldn't you expect God to send Zechariah with very uplifting messages? It's going to be all right, guys. Let's go get him. Hang in there, right? What's his message? A very sharp call to repent. I mean, would you find somebody who's very discouraged? Hey, can I have coffee with you? Sure. And you just lay into him. you got to repent. Is that what you would expect? Like, what kind of answer is that from, from God? He starts with them returning to God. He'll return to them. But that's how we enter this next section of the night visions. The structure is a literary pattern like a half diamond. I, I tried to organize your, your handout that way. If you see that kind of in and out motion of the eight visions, there's a reason for that. It's a structural way of underlining what's really important. Um, ver- ch- ver- visions one and eight show the start and end. They're each with colored groups of horses that represent Gentiles. Then visions two and three, problems with the nations and sin, are paired with visions six and seven. See the top next section and the bottom next section? So in God's problem with the nations, God problems with his people. And lastly, visions four and five in the center are highlighted. It's what we call chiastic structure or a half diamond shape. Those visions four and five, we could call the gospel according to Zechariah. That's really the meat of, of the book of Zechariah. The attention is on the temple and how the people needed to be cleansed in order to worship a holy God. The leaders are gathered. Specifically, the priest stands with filthy clothes. The priest represents the people, and the people have, I mean, priest has filthy clothes. 
Then the seven eyes of God are looking at that priest, followed by seven lampstands with oil flowing directly into them from olive trees. In other words, it comes from God and it's never going to run out. Right? So the oil runs into the lamps and the lamps keep burning. So the point of the visions is that God cleansed the priest of his sins and God provided a righteousness that the priest couldn't have on his own. So the first night vision, it appears in, uh, in verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius. God provided the exact day. We know the very day. It was February 15 of 519 B.C. It's not clear, but it seems like all, all eight visions were given to Zechariah that day because when you read the rest of the visions, they don't have that time marker, you know, the second year of, of Darius. So he saw them in the night, and uh, given the colors, we don't believe the colors are all that important. It's the bigger picture, the, the fact that the vision and an overall meaning, what are the horses all about? In those days, they only used horses for war. It'd be like you mentioning, yeah, on the way to church today, I saw four fighter jets overhead and four tanks driving down the road. That only has a military implication, right? So when you say horses, it only has a military purpose. These horses show war. It's an unmistakable overall meaning. They're used to war because they got their city destroyed, and then they were in prisoners of war in the Babylon. They had seen the rise of Assyria, then the rise of Babylon, now the rise of Persia. They were a weak nation trying to rebuild and used to being toppled around by other bigger nations at war. How are they supposed to have confidence in the Lord God during this conflict when they just look weak? Right? So you have two things happening. One is the people of God who had God's promises had been prisoners of war, their temples destroyed, their cities destroyed, and they're trying to rebuild and not very successful. Meanwhile, you have all the nations of the world who are doing these things to God's people, and they're having success. So the four horses go throughout the world, and they come back with a report. What's going on in the world? And they say, the nations are at ease. Is that good news or bad news? That's bad news. The nations should not be at ease because the God of all the earth is going to judge the nations. And he's also going to save his people. So everything looks like it's in reverse. He doesn't bless his people. Look, they're weak and it's a mess. He does bless the nations, apparently, because they're all wealthy and at ease and they can attack our people with abandon. Both are going to be reversed by the Lord God, right? Jerusalem's in ruins. The nations are flourishing. Both are going to change. The angel of the Lord in verse 12 says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? Yet." Um, verse 13 is absolutely incredible. What do we have here? God the Father talking to God the Son, Zechariah listening. Listen to verse 13. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. This angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So we have the characterization of the words, and then Christ turns to Zechariah in verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. It means that God cares about Jerusalem. He's going to protect his people. But that's not all. What about the nations? Verse 15 tells us, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. While I was angry a little, they furthered the disaster. He's jealous for his people, Jerusalem, and he's angry with the nations. He's about to reverse the outcome for both. So this first night scene is ominous. It appears in the dark. Uh, these horses are bringing reports back. 
and God is going to do something to judge the nations. Uh, he's going to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comforted. So, how long? There's, there's a couple of responses that God gives to this question, how long? First, that he cares about Jerusalem. Second, in verse 16, he will show mercy and his house will be rebuilt and uh, the measuring line be stretched out. Before you start work, you make a blueprint or you measure things, right? And so it's not just the temple that would be rebuilt, but the whole city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt, according to verse 16. The image of the measuring line is significant. It appears here in uh, verse 16, and it appears again in chapter 2, verse 1, in another vision. Um, The measuring line of judgment becomes the measuring line of restoration, that God reverses their uh, fortunes, their future. Um, The third response of God to how long is verse 17, where he cries out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. You ever tried to comfort someone who's scared? You say, that's okay, it's going to be okay because of this and this and this. And they're still scared. And then you have to repeat. It's going to be okay because of this and this and this. You have to repeat and repeat and repeat. Persons who are scared, right? So God uses the word again four times in verse 17. It highlights the abundant proof that God is fulfilling his promise and comforting his people. So fast forward to Luke chapter 2 in the Christmas story. Who appeared to the shepherds? Listen carefully. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. It's that same angel of the Lord that Zechariah is talking about. We talk about it as the second person of the Trinity. It's the messenger of the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who was always in existence and he was doing work even in the Old Testament. So the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And uh, the angel of the multitude of the heavenly hosts was praising God and saying what? Glory to God in the highest and on earth what? Peace. That's what they wanted. They wanted peace. So again, the day of um, Jesus arriving into Jerusalem, fast forward, he's a man. He's coming in what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. The people said in Luke 19, 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And later in that same chapter, Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. Later, Jesus dies on a cross near Jerusalem, rises again. Think of the disciples now left alone in Jerusalem, gathered and huddled together. Significantly, Jesus appears to them again. The same angel of the Lord appeared to the discouraged people in ancient Jerusalem. The same risen Lord Jesus Christ appears to his people behind locked doors who were discouraged. After his resurrection, what does he say? John 20, 19. The evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. It's so cool to see the the connections through the Bible. I just wanted you to see one vision unwrapped this way. Um, There's that much value in each of these visions. Um, His wounds on his hands and his side became the reassuring, overjoying part because when Thomas doubted, he says, put your hands here. They used to be symbols of defeat, and now they're symbols of victory and reassurance of God's coming peace. So the vision of the horsemen stirred the people to long for the peace of God. And when Jesus came, he brought the peace of God. Whew! That's what I wanted to get to. Um, Oh, one more, and I'll close. In the book of Revelation, it shows Jesus sitting on a what? 
on a horse. So this first vision, the night vision, is of these four colored horses, and Jesus sits on a, a white horse, and he has what in his hand? A measuring rod of gold to measure the city, Revelation 21:15. So everything that's in the book of Zechariah is repeated in a glorious way in, in the book of, of Revelation. By the way, there's no temple in the city of Jerusalem rebuilt in heaven. The temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Revelation 21, 22. So God's peace reigns there forever, wholeness, harmony. First vision of horses, military power. God's power is seen in the uh, resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus is seen sitting on the horse, and so we are to long for that. God's peace uh, granted through Jesus. We have it already by faith. We will do not yet have it fully in the way that we will experience it then. All right, we will continue next time uh, the rest of the visions and then the third, third week, um, chapters 9 through 14. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this book.